0: Bible reading today is all of Hebrews 13. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison, and those who are mistreated, as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have, because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, The Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do so. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority, because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. Pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way. I particularly urge you to pray so that I may be restored to you soon. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation, for in fact, I have written to you quite briefly. I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released. If he arrives soon, I will come with him to see you. Greet all your leaders and all the Lord's people. Those from Italy send you their greetings. Grace be with you all.
1: Let, let's come to the Lord in prayer first, shall we? Shall we just pray? Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth, it's living and active, it penetrates. Uh, dividing right into our souls to teach us who we are, who you are, and how we can have a relationship with you. Help us this morning as we dig into your word, help us to concentrate, help me to speak well, and we pray, Lord, that you'd guide us by your spirit so that we might mine wonderful truths from your word, and we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the letter to the Hebrews was written to Jewish Christians who were struggling because of hardship and persecution. And they were tempted to toss in the towel, weren't they? You've seen that in the series that you've been going through, and to give Christianity away and to return back to Judaism, back to the safety of a religion that was actually accepted in the Roman Empire of the day. And we, in many ways, are under similar pressure today, aren't we? As the values of our culture shift, and Christianity and what God says in his word is increasingly rejected. And we are tempted to retreat, just as the Hebrew Christians were, to tone down the message, perhaps, to become nominal, to become somewhat worldly. And the Hebrew Christians were tempted in that way, too. And what really happens when we retreat like that as Christians? Well, the letter to the Hebrews is, you've been through it, it unpacks it all. Our faith stagnates and there's no growth. There's a lack of discernment that happens. We become careless and lazy in spiritual matters. We become irregular in our attendance. We no longer listen to the word of God carefully. We no longer submitted to godly leadership. All these issues have been raised in the book of Hebrews by the writer. And then what's the answer? The, Hebrew, the writer to the Hebrews encourages these struggling Christians and he encourages us to hold on to Christ to hold on to him. He's reminded that Jesus, he's reminded us that Jesus is the son of God, the very essence of divine glory in that chapter one there and the creator of the universe and he's also told us that he's our high priest who sacrificed himself on a cross for us and who intercedes for us as our advocate and that he's God's last word to us about salvation the temple, the priests, the Old Testament rituals are finished, they're useless. They merely pointed to Christ and now that he's come, they're gone. There's no going back to Judaism, he writes to these Hebrew Christians. To go back there is to embrace a nominal, external, worldly religion. And this whole letter is about Jesus. He's the source of courage and strength to keep enduring in the Christian life. And so the author says in chapter 12, fix your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of your faith. And here in chapter 13, verse eight, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So look to him, learn from him, lean on him. And so now we come to this last chapter, chapter 13, and at first glance it seems to be sort of a a collection of uh, a sort of to-do list of miscellaneous unconnected items cobbled together at the end. But that's actually quite wrong. It's not just a few scattered thoughts drawn together. It's actually essential teaching that follows chapter 12. Where does chapter 12 finish? It It finishes in 28 where it says, therefore since we are receiving a kingdom, that cannot be shaken, it's sure, we can be confident in that, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So what does it mean to worship God with reverence and awe? What does that mean? Jesus has brought us into God's presence. How are we to worship him acceptably? How are we to live before him? In the Old Testament, when people came to the tabernacle, of course, they came into the presence of God. And what did they do? Uh, well, the book of Leviticus tells us, and there's a whole pile of details and regulations and rituals and so on, sacrifices. and That's why it's so hard to read. Uh, and the way you approach this terrifying presence of a holy God is by following all the instructions in Leviticus, the sacrifices, rituals, and ceremonies, which all were, as, as I said before, pointers ultimately to the coming of Christ. But now Christ can, has come. We can enter confidently into the presence of God through his death and resurrection. So, what does it now mean to live before God now? How do we worship God? That's what chapter 13 is about. Let's take a look at the text. Firstly, we worship God by loving others, loving each other in the church family. Keep on loving, verse 1, one another as brothers and sisters. Jesus said, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Love is the greatest evangelistic tool in the world, isn't it? In the early church, people were watching on and they would say with admiration of the Christians, see how they love one another. And the Greek historian Lucian was scandalized by the behavior of Christians. This is what he wrote about them. Their founder persuaded them that they should be like brothers and sisters to one another, therefore they despise their own privacy and view all their possessions as common property. He's picked up, hasn't he, on the radical nature of Christian love. It's a family love. Brothers and sisters in Christ. And what does family do? Well, it The family relates together intimately, they eat together, work together, play together, live together, make decisions together, hold each other accountable. They share the same family resources. They often live under the same roof, share the same food and and the family assets and spend the family money. And that's what Lucian means when he says, they despise their own privacy and view all their possessions as common property. It was unheard of in ancient culture and I can tell you it's a fairly unique thing even in our Western culture. That's what brotherly and sisterly love is. It's radical, we're committed to each other, to sharing our lives, to caring for each other and meeting each other's needs and we worship God when we love each other like that. And love shares with strangers, verse two. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. You know, someone described hospitality as making people feel at home when you wish they were. (laughs) It's not always easy to be hospitable, is it? Some of us feel our home is a place to retreat and, and relax and to be yourself. It's not easy to open your home But God is calling us to do that, not only to one another, but also to strangers. And this will involve, of course, putting ourselves out, won't it? It's going to intrude on our privacy. It means rearranging our plans and schedules and and food and even, even maybe our furniture. And yet, hospitality is one of the most powerful means that God has used to reach the world down through the centuries. In the New Testament, the Christians, of course, didn't have church buildings, did they? They met in people's homes. And so in Romans 16, we read about Priscilla and Aquila opening their homes. They were sort of fellow workers of the Apostle Paul and had church meetings in their home. What a blessing that was for the Christians. And what a blessing they were to Apollos, who was a key leader in the church and a gifted speaker, but was confused in his theology And so they invited him into their home and discipled him and and sort of sorted out his theology. What a powerful place the Christian home can be, especially for the advancement of the gospel. And it was for the New Testament and it will be for us in years to come as Christianity is increasingly under pressure and rejected and free speech in the public square is increasingly eroded. And all this, of course, underscores how important our growth groups are, our small groups are, meeting each other in each other's homes. Notice he gives a practical incentive there. By so doing, some people have shown hospitality to with angels without knowing it. He's not saying that as a, a general thing, he's drawing attention to a particular situation in, in, of Abraham in, in Genesis 18. Abraham's sitting at the tor- door of his tent in the middle of the day. Why is he there? He wants to practice hospitality. He's concerned for the well-being of passers-by who might need shelter and refreshment. And so he sits in the door of his tent and angels pass him by, stop and enjoy his hospitality. And in the next chapter, Lot actually does the same thing, doesn't he? Both entertain angels unaware. Why? Because they were given to hospitality. They were hooked on hospitality. And we need to be those sort of people. We may not see angels, but we wanna see the cause of Christ prosper, don't we? And see people saved. So we not only open our hearts to one another, we open our homes to one another and to strangers and we practice hospitality. And love cares for those who suffer. Verse three, continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison and those who are mistreated as if you yourself were suffering. See, we, we need to rediscover and re establish a caring community in the church, a radically caring community in the church. In those days, if you didn't visit prisoners, uh, they wouldn't get fed and they could even die waiting for trial. The Hebrew Christians had a social conscience. They cared for people in prison, many of them, no doubt, their fellow prisoners, fellow believers, and they looked after their physical needs. The church is a caring community with a strong social conscience, caring for people in prison, caring for the marginalized and the disadvantaged, caring for the oppressed and mistreated. It wasn't the social gospel. They didn't think the gospel was caring for people. They didn't make that mistake. That isn't the gospel, but it is a consequence of the gospel, isn't it? That's the shape of the ministry of the church. It's a ministry of word and deed. That's the shape of Jesus' ministry. He taught crowds about God and the kingdom of heaven and he also healed the sick and fed the hungry and so on. The ministry of of the word produces caring people. And people forget, don't they, that hospitals and schools and welfare organizations came from the church and the influence of Christianity. Slavery was abolished by the tireless work of William Wilberforce and his Christian conscience. It has always been Christianity that has reached out to the marginalised and the oppressed in the name of Christ. And we mustn't lose that. Love cares for those who suffer. And love uh, respects marriage. Look at verse four. Marriage should be honoured by all, and and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Again, this distinguishes us more and more, doesn't it? In our age, this is where we stand out as Christians. Our culture rejects, now rejects the Bible's view of marriage and considers it old fashioned and out of date. But God hasn't changed his mind on this. The writer to the Hebrews is telling us that sex outside of marriage is still not right in God's eyes. Not that the Bible is against sex. Sex is a very enjoyable thing. It's a wonderful gift within the covenant of marriage. God doesn't change his mind about this. And anything that undermines marriage is unloving. Sex outside of marriage, adultery, viewing pornography, same-sex relationships are not Christian love. People say, "Oh, we love one another." No, you don't. You love yourself. God will judge all sexual immorality. And so if that's you, repent and look to Christ for forgiveness. He has abundant grace for you, turn from that. And sex within the covenant of marriage is given by God as the basic building block of society. Its purpose is unselfish, its purpose is self-giving and this may be considered, as I said, old-fashioned and politically incorrect but this is what God wants and it's what's right and good for human flourishing. This is how we worship God with reverence and awe. And then love is being content. Look at verses five and six. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Knowing Jesus completely changes your attitude to money, doesn't it? We're against materialism or should be. We serve a savior who left the glory of heaven, gave up everything, and humbled himself even to death on a cross so that we might be saved. And yet materialism and covetousness and greed has infected us like a virus, like a cancer. And we brought into the lie, haven't we, that we're best defined by what I own than by who I am in Christ. By the car I drive or the house I live in, if I don't think I have enough, then there's anger and resentment and jealousy and and thinking that God has given me a raw deal isn't being fair to me. It's loving money more than God. And this love of money and worship of materialism has invaded the church to such an extent that the gospel work suffers. One church worked out, in the UK that if everyone was unemployed and, and tithe the doll, just giving 10% of the dole to gospel work, the church's income would go up by 60%. If I'm content with all I have, knowing that God has given it all to me and promising that he will never leave me or forsake me, then I'm beginning to live as a Christian in the world because my security is not in how much do I have in the bank. It's in God's promise to me I will never, ever, ever, ever leave you. That's the force of the sentence here in the Greek. Then I will be generous towards God and the work of the gospel and others around me in need. Love is being content with what we have and trusting God will always provide what we need. How do we worship God? Firstly, by loving one another in the the ways that we've just outlined in the first few verses And secondly, by being loyal to godly leaders. Apparently, all was not well with the Hebrew church. Uh, They were not obeying and respecting their leaders. And we see the results in verses 9 to 14. They're being carried away by all kinds of strange teaching. Now, there are two sets of leaders mentioned in this passage. Verse 7 refers to the original leaders, the original band of apostles that first brought the gospel to the readers. And verse 17 refers to the contemporary leaders who are currently leading the church. So, what do godly leaders do? They teach and model God's word. Look at verse 7. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. That's what godly leaders do. They speak the word of God to you and they live it out, and they're examples of the faith just as much as the Old Testament heroes of faith mentioned back in chapter 11. Be loyal to godly leaders those who teach you the word of God, who live consistent lives of faith. Not perfect lives, but consistent lives of faith. And notice in verse 17, they also care for your souls. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give account. Do this so that their work will be a joy and not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. See, if the book of Hebrews has taught us anything, It's this, my soul and your soul needs watching. The hymn puts it so well, doesn't it? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Hugh Latimer was the bishop in the Church of England at the time of the Reformation. He was summoned once by Henry VIII to preach in his private chapel. Uh, Henry VIII, as you know, was an English king at the time. He had six wives and uh, he was a serial polygamist. And so. Hugh Latimer came to the royal chapel and he chose as his text Hebrews chapter 13 verse four marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure for God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral and as you can imagine the king was absolutely livid and he sent the bishop away ordering him to return the following week and preach again. So Hugh Latimer went away and he prayed and he thought and he meditated on what he should preach. And next Sunday he appeared again before the king and opened his Bible and he said, My text is Hebrews 13, verse 4 marriage should be honoured by all, etc. What happened to Hugh Latimer? Well, King Henry actually realised that he was a man who cared for his soul more than for his own life. See, one of the chief means of safety for us as Christians is to put ourselves under pastoral oversight, the protection of a godly leader who is an under-shepherd, not an overlord, but an under-shepherd because Jesus Christ, verse 20, is the great shepherd of the sheep. That's where our safety lies. The great shepherd gathers his sheep sheep into folds into his church, and he appoints under shepherds in the church who speak the word of God, watch over your souls with a sense of great responsibility, knowing they must give account to him. Be loyal to godly leaders. Remember them, appreciate them, learn from them, submit to their authority. Why? Not because they were perfect men. None of them, no no preacher or pastor is perfect they're not perfect in their preaching or their conduct, but, but, but because they speak the word of God to you and watch over your souls. It is true, there have been some bad pastors. They're authoritarian, they're domineering bullies, and they need to be held of an account and removed from office. Pastors are to be gracious, gentle servants. But to be honest, over the years... Despite some negative experiences with some pastors, I've encountered way more bullies in the pew than in the pulpit. So what does it mean to submit to your leaders? Well, it means simply to love and respect and encourage them. It means to be faithful and gracious, to be a low maintenance member who is encouraging rather than critical, who works to serve rather than to be served, who who works for peace and harmony in the church. And notice what happens when you do this. Your pastor's work becomes a joy and not a burden and he will praise God for you. Now no pastor is perfect. Pastors don't always get things right. But when members know this and submit anyway and extending grace to them, we make their work a joy and I think we bring great glory to God, the Chief Shepherd. How do we worship God? By loving others, by being loyal to godly leaders, but thirdly, by living gospel-shaped lives. The gospel is about grace, not works. The writer of the Hebrews has emphasized that over and over again. Uh, verse nine, do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teaching. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do so. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. The high priest carries the blood of the animals into the most holy places, a sin offering. But the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Now, we don't know what the strange teaching was that the Hebrews had fallen into, some of them. It probably had something to do with the Jewish ceremonial food laws, but the point is this, watch out for strange teaching. It's not ceremonial foods that will strengthen you. It's not the law or moral code that strengthens you. It's not some Christian fad or technique that will strengthen you. It is grace that keeps the Christian's heart strong. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, he says, by Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, forever, forever. And so resist the pull of strange teaching. Keep grace of the Lord Jesus Christ at the center of your faith for he bore your sins on that cross, didn't he? The priests, you know, they made sacrifices year after year on the altar of the tabernacle and temple but those sacrifices couldn't save anyone. But we have an altar called a cross on Calvary's Hill, outside the camp, outside the city of Jerusalem where the blood of the new covenant was sacrificed once and for all and where we find complete and full forgiveness, where we find access into God's presence. It is by grace through faith, not by works, and of course that's offensive to the self-righteous, isn't it? The world hates the message of the cross, you know. All have sinned, no one is righteous, all need the grace and love and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it rejects Jesus and it will reject you if you follow him. So, what do we do? We live outside the camp. The Hebrew Christians were persecuted by Jews and Romans, and so the world, and today the world, rejects us as followers of Jesus. Look at the uh, verse 13, what the writer says there. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for a city that is to come. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess His name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifice as God is pleased. How are we going to live? Are you going to live by the way of the cross? If so, you'll have to go outside the camp to bear the disgrace He bore. Or are we, are we going to live by the way of the world? with you know, the in crowd, inside the city. The cross calls us, doesn't it, to deny ourselves, to die and to self and to live for others. That's the Christian lifestyle. It's not easy, that's the Christian lifestyle. Living gospel-shaped lives means identifying and suffering with Jesus, longing for heaven, living for others, that's how we worship God. How do we worship God? By loving others, by being loyal to godly leaders, by living gospel-shaped lives, and finally, by relying on the Lord's strength alone. Where do we get strength to worship God acceptably? It's there in the heart of the chapter, isn't it? Look at the text, verse six. The Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. His presence is our strength. Is that you? you, do you rely on his strength? ask myself, am I relying on his strength? Verse eight, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, forever. He doesn't change in a world where everything is in flux and decay. The town hall in Copenhagen had a complete astronomical clock. It's one of the most complicated clocks in the world. It was designed by a master locksmith by the name of Jens Olsen over a 50 year period. It took seven years to assemble between 1948 and 1955. Now, the clock has 10 faces, over 14,000 parts. It cost a million to build in 1955, and it's accurate to two-fifths of a second every 300 years. It tells the time of day, the day of the week, the month, the year, the movement of the planets, and even when there'll be an eclipse. There are some parts of the clock that won't move until 25,000 years have passed. But the point is this. It's not accurate. It loses two fifths of a second every 300 years. (laughs) But Jesus Christ is the same. He doesn't slip as the years pass. You can rely on him. Are you relying on him? Charles Spurgeon, the preacher, put it this way. There is the same water in the well still. And if we're not drawing it It's our fault. We come away from the fire. That's why we're cold. Let us return to him and he will receive us gladly and warmly as he did when we first believed. And now look at that final prayer in verse 20 to 21. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything uh, everything good for doing his will And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The mightiest demonstration of power that the world has ever seen has been in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this powerful God who raised Jesus promises to equip you with everything you need to do his will and to please him. How? Through Jesus Christ. That's the secret of life. That's how God intends us to live, through Jesus Christ. So Paul says in Philippians 4, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. That's how we're empowered to worship. Acceptably, with reverence and awe, through Jesus Christ. The old hymn says it so well. May the mind of Christ our Saviour my Saviour, live in me from day to day by his love and power controlling all I do and say. That's our acceptable worship. Christ, the enabler. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us this morning. Thank you for reminding us that worship, that to worship you is much more than what we do on a Sunday morning. but That our worship is all of life in our love for those inside and outside the church community, in our response to leaders who nurture us in the faith, in the way we live out the gospel day by day, and in our daily dependence on you. Lord, forgive us for those times when our worship has been weak and compromised and we've lost sight of the great shepherd, Jesus, who loved us and served us even to death on a cross. Fill us with your spirit so that we're continually empowered to worship you in spirit and in truth. Lord, to you be all the glory and praise and honour, now and forever. And we pray it in the precious name of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen.